brought to you by Penguin. I think there is so much in our culture that is misogynistic, that is demoralizing, that is difficult for women. And it's just been pushed down and taken a different shape. Hello, and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Here we invite authors to discuss the inspiration behind their work and how they channel that inspiration onto the page. Essentially, how do they realise their ambitions? Each episode, our guest brings with them a selection of objects that have influenced them and their writing, and then we delve a little deeper into why. This week, it's the turn of the novelist behind 2019's phenomenal word-of-mouth bestseller, Daisy Jones and the Six, which is currently being adapted for TV by producer Reese Witherspoon and is due for release later this year. Her novels often plunge us into worlds of glamour, fame and money, but with the darker side of human nature never too far from the surface. In her latest book, Malibu Rising, we are invited to the most talked about party in Malibu in 1983 and into the complex lives of those hosting and attending it. What follows is an in-depth look at some of the most important aspects of life. Love, friendship, ambition, desire, responsibility and above all, family. So, it is a great pleasure to welcome to our own Penguin podcast party, not probably as glamorous as 1983 in Malibu, <laughs> Taylor Jenkins-Reed. Hi, Taylor. Hi. It's great to have you here. It's great to have you here. I'm really excited to do this. Um, what is your own understanding of celebrity? What it means? Is it important? What is its purpose? Um, I love this question. I think celebrity is hugely important. And the reason why I think that is because I think the people that we are captivated by tell us so much about ourselves. There have been celebrities of some sort in every culture, whether it's the monarchy, whether it's stories about Greek gods. We're, we're telling stories to each other about these people that we've put on a pedestal. I'm fascinated by who are the people that we choose to elevate. I'm fascinated by our how our relationship changes to them as they become, you know, fallible in our eyes. And I'm also interested in what happens when they walk away from the spotlight. And so I think my focus for a while now has been what does it feel like to live on that pedestal? And also what does it feel like to either fall off or, or decide to walk down the steps if those exist um, and leave it behind. How do you think the nature of celebrity has changed from, say, when Mick Reaver, one of the characters in your book, was famous in the 50s to fame today in the 21st century? Yeah, I think, I think the biggest change has been access. Someone like Mick Reaver, who was fake famous in the 50s and 60s and the later half of the 20th century, you don't have access to someone like McReva. There's not the implication that you ever will. I never once in my life thought that I had the right to know what was happening with Frank Sinatra. He's not accessible to me. And to me, famous people like that are much more interesting. There's so much more mystery 
now we live in a time in which every aspect of a famous person's life is expected to be accessible to me. I don't know. Fame today does not seem very fun to me. I have a lot of respect for people that can tolerate that high of scrutiny on them now. Does that mean then, and we're not going to dwell on your previous work, but Daisy Jones and the Mm -hmm. Six, the romance between Lindsay Buckingham and then the breakdown of that relationship with Stevie Nicks, there's a mystery around it that just wouldn't exist today. 100%. And that's why it's fascinating enough to me that I can continue to listen to rumors over and over and over because there are answers I will never get and answers I know I'm not entitled to. Um, The world that we live in now doesn't really allow for that anymore. There's not a lot of room for unanswered questions. We're all so accessible to each other. People ask things so directly. And our relationship to our art has changed. If I have, if this is a song that means something to me, if this is art that means something to me, well, I'm going to seek out the person that made it and I'm going to send them a DM. I mean, not me personally. I don't do that because I want to keep the mystery, but our art is so much closer to us. And there's great things about that. But mystery is one of the things that we lose in this new world that we're in. But mystery, there's not. What I loved about Malibu Rising when I was reading it, Taylor, was the pace. I was constantly carried along by the movement of the relationships and the interpersonal play between them. Is that something you find as a writer quite natural to do? Or do you find yourself committing yourself to the screen and then editing, pulling it back, pulling it back? I really appreciate you saying that because pace was really a huge thing to tackle with this book. There are so many characters. There's so much that happens. It takes place over a single day, but you're getting to learn so much about this family leading up to that day. It was something that from day one of writing this draft, I was very aware of. There's a lot of information I have to give you. I want you to get to know these people. I want you to luxuriate in the beach and how it feels But at the same time, something I pride myself on is that you can pick up my book, any of my books, I think, on, you know, a Saturday morning. And if you want to finish it by Monday, I want it to feel like a pleasure. I want it to feel like a thrill and something that you just sort of do. So balancing all of the work I have to do to get you there without ever making it feel like you're doing work to, enjoy it. I mean, that's, that's what I spend nights, like up at night, not being able to sleep, trying to figure out how to do that. So that is a compliment that means a lot to me. When you write about women, especially women decades in the past, what is the emotional echoes of writing about women in a different period of history for you? Does it remind you of how far perhaps we've come while still not being anywhere near where we want to be? Or does it depress you about the choices that women had to make or indeed they didn't get to make? Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever written a woman in the past and felt like, oh, I feel so much for her because I don't have to face this now. And I think part of that is because the the women that I'm choosing to write about and the things about them that I'm choosing to highlight are things that I'm thinking about today. But I think there is so much in our culture 
that is misogynistic, that is demoralizing, that is difficult for women. And it's just been pushed down and taken a different shape. And so someone like Nina Riva, who is, she's a swimsuit model. She's the daughter of a famous man. She's married to a famous man. Um, You know, one of the things that I find really interesting about her is that she is a very fascinating person herself. She is incredibly talented as a surfer, but the world doesn't see her that way. The world sees her as a beautiful woman in a bikini. And um, yeah, do I think that was heightened in the 80s with somebody like, you know, Brooke Shields or Farrah Fawcett, who we, you know, we put their poster on the wall? Yeah, it was it was heightened then. Is it still happening constantly today? Yeah. And I think that's what's interesting to me about looking at these women in the past, because we tell ourselves that these things have been resolved, but they haven't. And and they just take different forms and they get more insidious and they get more nuanced and complicated and, and harder to spot. And so each of these women that I've been writing about for the past few years are facing things that were a problem then and I think are still a problem today. How do you contemporize your mind to write about a period of history when you weren't around. I mean, like if it's the 70s for your yeah. previous novel or, or even now, I, I don't know your age, but I certainly know that you, you even if you were around in 83, you would have been very, very young. <laughs> I was born four months after the party. I was not around for Mal- the events of Malibu Rising. I, I, right. You know, okay. um, to me, that is the most fun part of my job. And I sort of discovered it by accident because my first four books that I wrote were, t- were contemporary stories told in Los Angeles. And I was so intimidated by the idea of, you know, how do I create a world that isn't this contemporary world we're in? But I started with The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. That was a story that I knew I wanted to tell. And I just fell in love with research. I love the, the period of time where I've come up with the idea, I've pitched it to my editor, but I haven't started the draft yet. It's like magic to me. It's like a honeymoon. I've got stacks of books that I've bought and I'm, I'm watching movies from that time. And I'm just absorbing a world that I didn't get to live in firsthand. And it is a really fun way of going somewhere else in my mind. And, and my feeling is, is I'm enjoying being in this world in my mind, then hopefully I can get people excited about being in this world on the page. Let's get to your first object. And that is, interestingly, a subscription for a very famous magazine. Tell us about this magazine and why you chose this as one of your objects. So I think Vanity Fair has been my favorite magazine since I was a teenager. And the reason why it has become deeply important to my writing lately is because it is so often the germ of a story for me. Vanity Fair is writing about famous, glamorous people, always from either a nostalgia point of view, taking us back to a certain moment in time, or they're spilling their secrets. And when I came up with the idea for The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which is about a movie star who decides to spill all of her secrets. She's doing a tell-all. It was because I was reading Vanity Fair, and it was a piece on the 
what was then the, the forthcoming posthumous memoir of Ava Gardner. And it was basically just five pages of excerpts where she's just trashing everybody left and right. She's like, you know, she's, she's telling on Frank Sinatra and she's telling on Mickey Rooney. And she's, I mean, it was just, and it was delicious. And I thought, oh, imagine if you could do a book like this, but it was all fiction. And so you could make up all of it. Or Vanity Fair did an article about, it was an oral history of the Laurel Canyon music scene. And so you've got Joni Mitchell who's saying one thing and then, David Crosby saying another thing and, and they're all telling us about this moment in time. And at that point I had, my husband had been reading a lot of oral histories and I was thinking that's like an interesting way to tell a story, but I hadn't fully formed it. And I really wanted to do a thing about singers that were in love with each other and singing songs about each other and making each other sing them, but it hadn't come together. And I saw that and I was like, that's what it is. And so with Malibu Rising, it was, it was a similar thing. And it's actually, I, in some ways, it's perhaps the most telling that I thought it was from Vanity Fair and it wasn't. <laughs> but I had read years and years ago a story about this debutante after party uh, in the, I think, early 60s that was a bunch of teenagers in a beach house. I think it was on Long Island or the Hamptons. And it went wildly out of control. And society was horrified that these nice young men and women who were supposed to be having a nice little after party, you know, tore the chandelier down and, and ruined the house. And I read it and I was like, that would be such a great book. And then years later, I had come up with the Riva family and I wanted to do something in Malibu. And I thought, oh, there was that Vanity Fair article about that party. I got to go find it. I spent months trying to find that article. It turns out it was in the Daily Beast. <laughs> it was not in Vanity Fair. I, it took me so long. And if I had just Googled without including Vanity Fair, it probably, I probably would have found it a lot sooner. But that's how much Vanity Fair is in my mind as a place where I find my stories. Recently, here's a bit of a name drop. I interviewed Aaron Sorkin and I asked him about, is it possible to is it possible to crave power without it polluting you? And I guess similarly as a question for you, is it possible to crave fame without it ultimately polluting you? I mean, this is a question I wrestle with constantly. I'm so drawn to celebrity and glamour because I think it's really fun. But I personally have found that whenever there are times in my life where I feel some sort of buzz of that level of attention, I don't think it brings out anything positive for me. So I feel very conflicted about it. That being said, do I think there are people that can live in this world and navigate it in a way in which they maintain their integrity? Yeah, I do. And I think that fame is a circumstance, both in terms of what I would imagine it feels like you're immediately entitled to and how much money comes with it. I think those are circumstances that, that breed a lot of negative characteristics in a person. And so the people that are able to live in that world and resist those things, uh, I have a lot of admiration for. Because America doesn't have a royal family, it finds fame and celebrity 
that is essentially that, right? So whether it be the celebrity of the Kennedys or whether it be Donald Trump becoming president. But considering you're a mother, your daughter is four, do you think about at all the kind of values that she will grow up with in terms of celebrity when you see young people and they say, I want to be an influencer? Does that concern you that, you know, you're that your daughter will need to be protected by that very warped idea of validation through just fame for the sake of being famous. Yes, hugely. And it doesn't just concern me for my daughter. It concerns me for every, every kid now. I write about fame as a really sort of oppressive advent in someone's life. It prevents you from being able to be true to who you are most of the time because you have to be performing something else in order to stay on top. It allows people access to you in a way that you may not feel like you own yourself anymore. There there are a lot of things about fame that I find really scary. And one of the things about writing about famous people that I find really gratifying is that we live in a world now where Everyone is dealing with some of those issues on a smaller level. People are doing that on Instagram every day now. We're all putting forth some message about what our life looks like that's totally insincere. That's a lot to carry. That's a lot for anyone to carry. Um, We've spoken about your daughter and... The reason why is because your second object is very much related to her. It's a piece of jewelry that you wear. Tell us about this. Yes. So I have um, a necklace that just has an L on it. And it is for my daughter, whose name is Lila. And, and it's also for my grandmother, whose name was Linda. And to me, they sort of represent those two people and, and how I'm trying to honor them putting them together feels like who I'm trying to be when I sit down at the computer and start writing. And, and what I mean by that is that for my daughter, she's inheriting a world that is much different than the one that I inherited and yet is, has not reckoned with some of the things that, that I still had to deal with as a child. And so when I'm writing stories and specifically when I'm choosing the women that I'm writing about, I am asking myself, what sort of person do I want to put forward in the world so that one day if my daughter read it, she would understand the world that I want for her? There are a thousand different ways to be a woman. Our society tends to be very prescriptive about it. You must be this way. You must be that way. This way is better than that way. I'm trying to put forward women that are all very different, that are all very flawed, that all represent a different way to be. And the other thing is my, my grandmother, Linda, she died a few years ago. She was so supportive of me. And she was the first person who I, I, I wrote a murder mystery as like a 12 year old. And it was so bad. And all, and all of the main characters were named after 90 celebrities. It was like Keanu went down to the beach and Winona was there, you know, it was like, It's so embarrassing. But she acted as if it was the greatest murder mystery she'd read in her life. She was so encouraging. And (laughs) I would come up with them and she'd be like, I don't want to read it myself. I want to hear you read it. I want to hear it in your voice as you see it. And I was just eating it up. Like I felt so supported. 
Um, so I do take some of that with me too. You know, I want to do the best for my daughter and I want to put something forth that that's meaningful, but also there is at least one person who existed, who would have thought anything that I did was just marvelous. And I, and I do, you know, keep that in my heart. Let's uh, now take a listen, Taylor, to an extract from the audiobook edition of Malibu Rising, where Nina is left to contemplate Brandon's sudden departure. Brandon, Nina said finally as they got to the driveway, look at me, please. We'll talk about this more at another time, Brandon said as he got in his car, and then he drove off. Nina stood there watching his car turn onto the road, She started gasping for air, stunned at what had just happened, what she'd just seen with her own eyes. What? She kept saying over and over, in between panicked breaths. What? She sat down on the front stoop of her home to gather herself. Only then did it really sink in that her husband was leaving her for another woman. She began to cry without even realizing it, wiping her cheeks but unable to keep up with the tears. Her eyes grew red and swollen. She could not move from her place on the stoop, heavy and dead, like an anchor tied to nothing. She cried until the sun started to set, until the birds settled into their trees. She'd have to tell her siblings he was gone. She felt embarrassed, thinking of how excited she'd been to take them to Bora Bora, She grew cold, sitting outside in Brandon's underwear. And then she stood up and dried her eyes, and she thought of June. She'd lived this all before, of course, watching her mother go through it. Family histories repeat, Nina thought. For a moment, she wondered if it was pointless to try to escape it. Maybe our parents' lives are imprinted within us, Maybe the only fate there is, is the temptation of reliving their mistakes. Maybe, try as we might, we will never be able to outrun the blood that runs through our veins. Or, or maybe we are free the moment we're born. Maybe everything we've ever done is by our own hands. Nina wasn't sure. She just knew that somehow, After everything that had happened in her life, she had ended up all alone on the front stoop, left behind by a man she had dared to trust. That was a reading from Malibu Rising, written by Taylor Jenkins Reid and narrated by Julia Whelan. The audiobook is available to buy now and there's a link in the programme notes of this very episode. Now, another object, and um, this is time for... uh, some tea bags. Um, (laughs) Why are these an integral part of your life? Uh, So I don't drink coffee. My whole adult life, I've just been addicted to iced tea. And it's gotten to the point now where pretty much every night I put in a Lipton iced tea cold brew bag in my pitcher. And then when I sit down at my desk in the morning, I have a pitcher of iced tea and my cup and I've got my research and my computer and my desk is clean. And for me, that is a clear mind. It's that feeling of I'm in control. (laughs) Uh, I have a lot of positive (laughs) feelings attached to my iced tea. I really need it 
I think, to to feel settled. Um, have you checked out the sugar content? Oh, no, there's no sugar. Okay. <laughs> there's no okay. sugar. Right, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just black tea. There's no sugar, nothing. Okay. <laughs> right, okay. So here's a question I've never asked an author before. But yeah. how many toilet breaks do you need to take in a day? Oh, my God. If you are, if you are drinking a pitcher of I iced tea. Ba- I have a bathroom right next to my office. <laughs> and it's literally like the the only steps I take in a work day are like desk, bathroom, desk, bathroom. I'm heavily hydrated and always in the bathroom. And that's just, it gets a little intense, but it's what I need. Right, look, let's get to your final object, which is by John Irvin. Tell us about this book, why you chose this book, The World According to Garp. So it was my sophomore year of college. I still had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. My roommate was an English major, and I was going home for Thanksgiving weekend. I had nothing to do on the commuter rail. And she was like, just take one of my books, you know. I don't know why that's the one that I picked out, The World According to Garp, but it was the first time where I was so consumed with a book that after I put the book down, I could hear John Irving narrating my life in my head. His voice was so strong and my pull toward that book was so intense that it was you know, for that four days or whatever it was, times when I was reading the book and times when I was not reading the book, trying to figure out when I could go back to reading the book. It had such a strong pull for me. And that narrative voice was so powerful that it stayed with me and I could hear it when it wasn't there. That was the first time I think that I realized just how gripping a novel could be, which is to say that it really got into every part of me and I felt consumed by it. And when I years later realized that I wanted to be an author, I kept coming back to wanting to create that feeling for someone. I'm shooting for the moon here, you know, like I don't know that I'll ever achieve that level, but it is the thing that I aim for is giving someone that experience of feeling so lost in a world that it sticks with them even after the book is done. I started off this conversation, Taylor, by talking about celebrity and its importance. Um, I guess I'd like to come to the end of our conversation by asking you about the positives and negatives of loyalty. Sure. I think within Malibu Rising, there's a lot to talk about about that particular issue. And I think... When we talk about loyalty, a lot of times, at least for me, I guess I should say, it becomes a question of family and chosen family, because loyalty is something that everyone says that they value, but it's very, very hard to follow through on. And so I find that I personally can be deeply loyal to a small group of people. Um, Loyalty is something that I take very seriously, but I think it's something that is thrown around and talked about very casually. Within the book, when people read it, they'll see it. There are family members that are not loyal. And there are people that, you know, aren't necessarily family who 
may prove to be very loyal. And I think that was, I know that was one of the things that I'm exploring here is that blood and loyalty are not the same thing. But can't loyalty sometimes lead, Taylor, to us doing things that are against our best interests? Uh, I think that's in some ways the very definition of it, that, that if you're loyal enough that you're doing the things that would be good for you, I'm not sure we can really define that yet as loyalty. I think it's only tested once you do things that you maybe probably shouldn't have because you cared so much about the person that you were doing them for. It's something that I wrestle with a lot. You have to be very careful about who you choose to give that loyalty to. Does writing, Taylor, allow you to live in a universe that you do not wish to inhabit? Or does it invariably affect who you are? At the end of writing a novel, it changes you in some way. It absolutely does. I think every book I start out thinking, well, here's my chance to get to experience a world that I've never experienced. I, with Evelyn Hugo, I can pretend to be a movie star. With Daisy Jones, I can pretend to be a rock star. With Nina Riva, I can pretend to be a super cool surfer. But that's the pretend part of it. And every single one of my books has changed me. That's very clear. I can, I can draw a line in many ways to certain things about my life that were different at the end of writing Daisy Jones. With Malibu, it has been hugely, hugely life-changing for me to write that book because it, it forced me to ask myself certain questions about what I think parents owe to their children. And now that I have answered those questions, I now have to live by that. And it has, um, it has changed me for the better, I think. Now, finally, Taylor, we do ask our guests about a recent book that they loved. So what would you recommend to the Penguin podcast listeners? What is sitting next to your bed at the moment? There is a book that is going to come out in July. It's called The View Was Exhausting. And it is this super fun love story. And I think if people like reading about fake famous people in my work, they'll like this one too. It's this A-list actress who is in a fake relationship with this playboy. They use each other to make everything look good from the outside and they're friends and complications ensue and somebody falls in love with somebody. And it's, it's kind of like Notting Hill, but for now, and I got to tell you, it's just absolutely delicious. You'll tear through it. So much fun. Well, look, I have to thank you for Malibu Rising. It's so nice to be given a book to read and just it's so effortless to read it. So thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. 